If you have your Bibles, turn in them with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Paul said, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must uh, be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So if you're looking at this chapter, it splits pretty evenly between elders and deacons. And I know there has been a lot of confusion about elders and deacons, and I pray tonight that we clarify some of these things. Overseer, bishop, elder, pastor, church leader, there's so many different words for this here. But it starts out by saying, this saying is trustworthy. And in the Greek text, it literally reads, faithful is the word. And Paul is saying something like, what I'm about to say next is 100% legit. All right, this is something that is faithful, this saying. So what we have here as we kind of move into 1 Timothy 3 is we move, we see Paul rather moving from discussing the congregation in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 15 to dealing with pastors first and then secondarily with deacons. And when dealing with the pastors, we see ministry, effectiveness, and testimony of any church is largely a reflection of its leaders. You don't need to like that. Just believe it, because it's true. Bad, bad churches are often led by miserable leaders. And, and the vice versa of it is true. When you see a great church and a new leader comes in, and he has an atrocious view of scripture, and he's super progressive, and he's tearing down God's word, you'll watch a great church turn into a terrible church. Because as go the pastors, so go congregations. And that's a problem. It's a serious problem, because the, the call to pastoral ministry is just that. It's a call. And the old saying goes pretty much without needing explaining. We, we in the church, those who are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, we do, we do not call up, you know, you know, people who are trained. But rather, it's more important to train people who are the called. Because you can find people who want a, good, a really good salary, and if you're a Presbyterian and you go get your MDiv, you can make $90,000 your first year of pastoral ministry. Now about you, but I don't sneeze at that. That's pretty okay money for a starting first year out of seminary pastor. But what's the rub with that? On one hand, I get the Presbyterians. On the second hand, I see it as a snare. The Presbyterians say pastors should be able to live and not act like paupers, scraping scraps off the ground to feed their families. I agree, that's miserable. Some congregations wish to leave their leaders in abject misery, living paycheck to paycheck, week to week. So I see what the Presbyterians are doing there. All right, pastors shouldn't have to scrounge to live. Amen, I agree with that. But the problem you create is now you've made people into career pastors who only see it as a means of, well, if I go back and I do a doctoral degree, I'll get a $30,000 bump and I'll go from 90,000 a year to 120,000 a year. Now I'm making six figures. So there can be a draw there. And in all honesty, no one should go into pastoral ministry seeking riches because that's a snare. The principle of Hosea 4.9, as it will be like people like priests, is still very true to this day. People do not normally rise above the level of their leaders. And this is true whether we like it or not. It's still true. Or else you have to go and ask yourself, well, then why did Christ put pastors and teachers in congregations if not to be in a position of teaching and instructing? Isn't it true? We, we all know it's true. So who leads the church? 
The office Paul described is that of a bishop. Our religious culture has given us a particular idea of what a bishop is, and I'm not talking about the little piece that goes on a chess set. Uh, the word bishop in the New Testament is the Greek word episkopos. Literally from the word over in Greek, epi, and the word watcher or to stare, skapos. Episkopos means an overseer. Or if you want to hear the most literal, literal translation, would it be one who looks over you or one who peers over your shoulder? Now, I stay away from that because that sounds creepy. You certainly don't want me staring over your shoulder, uh, just like I don't want you staring over mine. But the idea is that of an, an overseer is someone who, by God's grace and calling, is someone who watches over people. That's the word episkopos. You get the word episcopalian right out of this Greek word, which is a whole form of church government. But notice here, he who desires this position is someone who is desiring a good work. Now, the idea of this verse is not, because this is a problem. The idea of this verse is not good for you. You want to have a place in church leadership. Man, that's awesome. Even though that can be a godly desire. That's not at all what Paul meant. The idea is a lot more like this. This is a good, noble, honorable work. Timothy, you need to look for good, noble, honorable men. Okay? That's what you need to do. Because remember, the same, a similar thing is written to Titus, another one of Paul's true sons in the faith. And he tells him, I left you on Crete for such a task to appoint elders, plural, in every city, singular. And so what did Titus have to do? He had to do the exact same thing Timothy had to do. You're looking for good, noble men who are of high character, honorable, not snakes and drunks and scoundrels. That's not what you're looking for. Unfortunately, today in the church, a lot of people think good businessmen would be great elders and they're miserable elders. They're usually not good because they come into church and what do they do? Well, they want to run church like a business. The church is not a business. It's not a business. Yes, we have to do church business. We all have to. People are ah, oh, church business. We're going to get to church business because we have to do it. But church is not a business, all right? We're not IBM, we're not Lenovo, and we're not Google. And would to God that we would never think those things because we're not those things. I made every one of my elders in New Brunswick read John Piper's Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. That is a book that gets right to the heart of what biblical eldership is. But let's move on to the qualifications of an overseer. It goes on, Paul says... An overseer then must be. Brothers and sisters, please listen very carefully here. Because I hear a lot of people get very wonky when it comes to church leadership. And it's only a couple things that really, really get under my skin. Um, Ariana Grande and her really bad music gets right under my skin. And, and when people improperly read scripture, take it out of context, in, in, insert their own personal views and pet doctrines, those two things truly get under my skin. There's so many people say, well, it would be good if your elders met these things. And I go, no, it, not, it would not be good. It's atrocious when they don't. The wording is must be. God has specific qualifications for leaders in the church. They're not just qualities, brothers and sisters. They are qualifiers. Qualifiers. Must be blameless is literally the very first thing that Paul lays out. I remember being a young man and thinking, checkmate, it's over. I have read the first thing on the list and I have closed the book. Who here can say they're blameless? Well, I think sometimes we get accused of being literal Bible readers, and I want you to be on I want you to hear me now, honestly. There's two different kinds of literal. There's figural, there's figurative literal and there's wooden literal. 
Don't ever read the Bible wooden literal because you'll say, you'll read things that are ridiculous, like the four corners of the earth. Do you, do you think the earth is a globe or do you think it's a cube? There's a society called the Square Earth Society and they have a website that says, and I quote without denigrating them, we know it looks like a circle from space, but we, th- we still think it's a square. Figurative literal. We're after the figurative meaning sometimes behind the Bible. Yes, the Bible's literal, but it also uses figurative language and you have to understand that. This word literally means nothing can take hold upon him. That's what it means. Otherwise, you would walk around and say, all of our elders are sinless. No, none of them are sinless. They're all saved, but none of them are sinless. It means nothing can take hold upon you meaning there must be nothing in the life of an elder that can take hold of him or attack the church. That's why this list of qualifiers is so important. So important. The second thing here is the husband of one wife. The idea in the Greek quite literally is a one woman man. It's not that the leader must be married because if so, then both Jesus and Paul could have not been spiritual leaders in the church and that's just ridiculous. That's not what it says. Nor is the idea that elders could never remarry if his wife had passed away or he was biblically divorced. It doesn't mean that either. Single men can absolutely be elders. If an elder's wife dies and he remarries, it does not disqualify him biblically from eldership. The idea is simple and it's so important that we hear this. It is the idea that his love, affection, and his heart is given to one woman and that be his lawfully and wedded wife. Ready? No womanizers in biblical eldership. No players, no girl chasers, none of that stuff. It's garbage. It doesn't exist. It is never, ever to be tolerated. And when men like this of low moral character, and that's the, that's the quality, men of low moral character go nowhere in the church. And ready? Ready? They go nowhere in their Christianity and quite often they go nowhere in life. Just when you're led of your, when you're led of your libido, you're in big trouble. Cause I'm gonna tell you right now, you're no better than an alley cat. I'll tell you this much. You're 10,000 times better than the best show pony on the planet. Don't act like an animal. You're not an animal. Maybe the world And maybe Darwinian science and evolution tells you that you're a highly evolved one, but I don't buy any of those fairy tales. You're not an animal. There's one thing in the entire creation order that is made in the image and likeness of Almighty God, and it's just humanity. Just humanity. So ready? You want to do the most godly and human thing there is? Live a normal sexuality in the image of God, who, who in all honesty, look at how God dealt with his own creation. Most people would have said, well, that was a horrible mistake. Experiment completely and absolutely failed. No, instead, instead, the second person of the triune Godhead forever wed his deity, humanity, and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and allowed himself to be mocked, spat upon, beaten, and crucified for us. Which means, brothers and sisters, in Christ... You're worthy. In Christ, you're of Of and in and of yourself, not at all. Not even a little. And everyone can get all mad at me. <laughs> you get mad if you need to. That's the truth. The truth is, left to ourselves, humanity is a giant, absolute, atrocious train wreck. And I agree with the, all the reformers' assessment of that. Man left to himself is destined to crash and burn. But for the riches and glory of Christ, but for the fact that Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Thank goodness for God's grace. Amen. Number three, this is a long list. If you didn't get this yet, if you were counting quickly, you were trying to keep up. It's 15, by the way. It's fifty. Yeah. Woo. Oh no, we're in trouble now. Someone thinks I'm not going deeply into any of them. Trying. I'm not trying to go deeply. 
Number three is sober-minded. It's the idea of someone who is not given to extremes. They're reliable and they're trustworthy. And you don't have to worry about a wide swing of either thoughts or moods or actions. The word is stable. What are elders meant to be? They're meant to be stable. People who can be trusted. They don't have wild, crazy swings. That's the worst kind of leader on the planet. Because the problem is they come through the door and you think to yourself, who am I getting today? And a lot of people go, well, you're loud and obnoxious. Yeah, but all the time. So you already know what you're getting. All the time. You know, I don't come in one day, you know, oh, well, tonight we're going to talk about elders and deacons, okay? You know, you'll never see that, Jay Falzerano. Because that's just not me. Self-controlled. This describes a person who is not... Uh, who is able to think clearly and with clarity. They're not constantly joking because they know how to deal with serious subjects in a serious way. Self-control is a really critical thing that in all honesty, first of all, all Christians are supposed to have self-control. Amen? We're all supposed to have self-control. One of the fruits of the spirit, which singularly is love, and then it manifests itself a bunch of different ways. Self-control is absolutely in there. It's a byproduct of real love. And when you love God because, A, he first loved you, you reflexively love him back. And that means you work on things like self-control. And in all honesty, you know what? It's easy to be out of control. But it takes much more discipline and focus to be self-controlled, doesn't it? Warren Wearsby says, this does not mean lacking a sense of humor or that is always solemn and sober. It suggests that he knows the value of things and does not cheapen the ministry or the gospel message by foolish behavior. I knew a young man who ascribed to be a pastor, but unfortunately, because all he could ever do was have a funny, cutting one-liner every moment of every day, eventually one of the pastors who was training him went to all the other pastors and said, he's never gonna be a pastor because he can't be serious for one second. Everything's a joke. Everything's funny. Everything's a one-liner. Everything's a zinger. Everything has to get a cut it up, ha-ha, laugh response. And that's not a pastor's heart. You can't be that way. You know what? Ready? We can all joke around and we can all have a lot of fun. Amen? We can all have a lot of fun. But I would say a a good 75 to 85% of your day and your life requires serious thought, not comedy and jokes. Learn how to be serious. Number five, an elder must be respectable. The idea is orderly. It's the same word translated modest in 1 Timothy 2.9. It means dignified. That's probably the best sense of this term. Elders are to be dignified. And you are respected by others when you have a sense of respectability, don't you? Dignified. Number six, and this is a big one and it's often overlooked. Elders must be hospitable. They must be willing and able to open up their homes to both friends and strangers. And in the Middle Eastern culture, this is a no-brainer. And in the Western culture, it's a lot different. But it means willing and able to attend to someone's needs. Be open and willing to show true hospitality. I know in some churches, the pastor is at the back of the church ready to shake your hand, but at the same time, he's also pulling you out the door so that he can go get lunch. Don't visit that church again. I'm not entirely sure they know what hospitality is. If you want to know what hospitality is, go talk to Rob Larson, all right? That's a man who very much knows what hospitality is. And then, and it's not, it doesn't mean that everyone just gravitates to it. And well, I've always been this way. It's not. It's a spiritual thing. It's not. It's counting the needs of others highly, even along with your own. Number seven, here it is right here. Here's what I call the, the boom wow. And this is where it gets real able to teach. The idea is one who has enough skill in the Bible to teach it properly, either in public or in a one-on-one setting. 
It does not mean as many have made it just okay at teaching. Able to teach. Well, you know, he's able to, he doesn't fall on his face. He's able to do it. Yeah, I'm also able to put on a tutu and spin around. It doesn't make me a ballerina. I wouldn't tell you I'm a fantastic dancer. You would never come to any of my shows because I'd never get one. Okay, it doesn't, it's so many people have said that. Well, you know, just as long as he doesn't, you know, throw up on himself or puke in his Bible while he's teaching a Bible study, he's able to teach. No, that's a atrocity in the language. It actually means apt to teach. That means has skill. Now, if you didn't catch this yet, I want you to see it. This is one of two qualifiers in the whole list that is not character-based. 13, that means of the 15 marks, 13 of them are all about character. Respectable, hospitable, blameless, character, 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 character. They're all character. Character. Able to teach. Definitive skill. Not a novice has nothing to do with your character. It's a time factor. So in the 15 definitive marks of what qualifies one to be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ, one is skill, one is how long you've been saved, and the remaining 13 are character-based. Your character. And this is why I've repeatedly said, and I'll say it again, no matter how many times it cheeses someone off. Let me tell you, the God's honest truth is God is 10 times more concerned about your character than he is your comfort. It's a big problem today. We raise spiritual babies, crybabies and brats with that. Jesus is gonna give you a, a whole life and it's a big bowl of cherries and nothing ever bad will ever happen to you. Why would we ever tell Christians that when they get saved? Why? Why would you tell someone that? Hey, it's patently false. Jesus actually promised you tribulation in this world. And that people hated me uh, just because of what I said. Oh, and by the way, you're all the ones who love me, follow me, and keep my commandments. Guess what? Now they're going to hate you too. You can't sell little books like that, you know, in Christian bookstores and, and online marketing because they don't sell. You have to sell books like, you know, Your Best Life Now, you're better than ever. You're the awesomest Christmas, you know, Christian ever. And in the words of John MacArthur, this is your best life now. You must be going to hell. If this is your best life now, that's, that's a rough book title. And y'all know who wrote it. Don't make me say Joel Osteen. Oh, too late I said it. You have to be able to open up God's word and be able to explain it. Because if you can't teach, people can't learn. And that is the definitive mark of a teacher. For, well, how do you know you're a good teacher? I don't have no clue. I would never call myself a good teacher. My students have told me I'm a good teacher. And that's the definitive mark. When you teach, people listen and learn. You know what's the definitive mark of a bad teacher? People walk out and go, wow, man, that had so many points. It was absolutely pointless. I don't have a clue what the guy was saying. He told some absolutely great family stories about vacation and, you know, grandkids and all these other things. That was all great. Teachers who really know what they're doing impart to others knowledge. And when people sit down, they walk out learned and refreshed. The church needs more teachers today. It does. And yet at the same time, we don't need an abundance of them because James 3.1 says, not many of us should become them. So it's a very fine balance point. Number eight, right to the point I like the ESV, not a drunk. There it is right there, laid right out for us. This verse in itself does not prohibit godly leadership from drinking alcoholic beverages, but it's clearly, it disqualifies drunks from leadership. You cannot be a drunk and be in leadership. The term in the Greek literally, paraoinos, literally means one who is constantly next to the wine. That means someone who can't possibly be anywhere without a drink in his hand. And by definition, that is a drunk. Someone who cannot go without alcoholic beverages. That's what a drunk is. And you are unqualified and unfit to serve in the master's house. 
You certainly cannot have drunks leading God's children. Number nine and 10, not violent, but gentle. I like how Paul couples these together. In some translations, it says not a brawler. That means this is a man who is not given to violence, either publicly nor privately, one who doesn't strike with his fist in the Greek. A man who can let God fight his cause. It's one who does not use his fists. That's literally what it says. But instead, it's one who is gentle. The Greek word translated as gentle here is also translated as tolerant or kind in many other New Testament passages. And it's interesting because the classic Koine Greek usage takes all three of those words and makes them all interchangeably. And someone who is gentle is also tolerant or kind. Number 11, following the exact same train of thought, not quarrelsome. This is the kind of person who always has to have the upper hand in a conversation. That is a man who is not fit for eldership in Jesus's church. The person who always has to argue what you say, always one up you, always have one of those, you know, kitschy sayings to make sure that whatever you said, they need to get the last word in. Watch out for people in your life who always have to have the last word in every single thing because it's a danger. Now, I didn't quote a lot of other outside New Testament passages, but this one I think ties in directly to the other pastoral epistle. Titus 3, 9 through 11, Paul tells Titus, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now that's a rough passage, and a lot of people probably don't catch all of it. But in all, in all honesty, what he's saying is, Stop fighting about all these goofy things that the Judaizers are coming in and trying to throw the church into disarray over. Genealogies, incensions, ceremonial law, civil law, moral law, all these different things. It doesn't mean that they're without their merit. It means that when you try to put them over and above the grace of Christ, now they're worthless. If these are the things, these are the definitive marks that bring us to God, that's ridiculous because it's the blood of Jesus Christ that atones for men and women's sinful hearts. That's what it is. It's only the slain blood of Christ. It's not our works. It's none of these different things. Those things are all works too. All works of the flesh. And people were stirring up different people in the church and people were getting very hot and bothered. Now this is the self-fulfilling prophecy. Paul says, warn someone like that once. That means there's grace. Praise God, there's grace. Take someone like someone on the side and say, hey, you're getting all spun out over things that are of a lesser value. And if they continue to do some, you can warn them then twice. And if they go to their other ways and they can't take a rebuke and a correction, you have nothing more to do with them, knowing that what? A, they're warped. Second, they're in sin. And guess what? They're self-condemned. And I'll tell you why. Because people like, in this church, it, people like this in the church eventually find themselves alienated and friendless. Alienated and friendless. When you talk to someone and all they ever want to do is jump down your throat and have all these different laws of, laws of do's and don'ts and that legalistic style of Christianity, you're going to find yourself very, very friendless. Or you'll only have friends who are just like you, and then you'll just go fight five of you in a corner together. And I don't think that's the definitive mark of Christian fellowship. Your actions can self-condemn you. So watch your actions. Number 12, big one. Not a lover of money. The King James Version, of course, puts it in a far more memorable way. Not greedy for, for filthy lucre. And when you read the King James, you'll never ever forget what it is. You may forget what filthy lucre stands for, but you'll never forget that word. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, that we'll wrap up with and close this whole session out at the end of summer is very germane here because it's in the same book. Listen to Paul's heart. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and 
destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, Jesus said this a very different way. You cannot serve two masters, for you will love one and you will hate the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is dishonest gain. That's what that means in Greek. Or as the King James would say, filthy lucre. And you can't. You cannot serve two masters. It's never going to happen. One eventually is going to gravitate and pull you. And you're going to give your heart more or less to one over the other. This love of money pulls so many people away from the greater love, and that's the love of Jesus Christ. Don't let money and its unbelievable, unsatisfactory play out, play you out. I see many Christians absolutely pierce themselves through with sorrow upon sorrow. All I need to do is get a slightly better job, with a little more money, get a little bigger house, get a this, that, this, this. And I'm going to tell you right now, seriously, please, for the love of everything holy and sacred, listen up. Money isn't everything. It does not bring about happiness. You can ask, you can ask the, the chronically ill millionaires club what they would give for health, and they would tell you all that I have and more. Money isn't everything. If you want to really feel rich, sit down tonight before you lay your head on your pillow and in your prayers, ask God to bring to your remembrance every blessing you have in him. And you will sit down and realize you are filthy rich. Filthy rich. Don't go after dishonest gains. Don't go after money. It's just a snare, guys. It's one more trap Satan uses to pull people away from the love of Jesus and pull them right into a world of, listen to me, bondage. Because when you get into bondage, what do you need to do? Work harder hours, longer hours, more hours for what? More money. So you can keep up with your lifestyle, so you can work longer hours, harder hours, more projects, bigger projects, so you can make what? More money. And when they asked Rockefeller on his deathbed if he was satisfied with the wealthy amassed, you know what he said? No. The journalist who was taking that interview was stunned and said, Mr. Rockefeller, you are a billionaire. What would it have taken to satisfy you? And his answer is astounding, and we should all buck up. He said, just a little more. Just a little more. Because it doesn't satisfy. Because just like Augustine said, there's a God-shaped hole in all of us. And you can throw anything you want in that hole. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, and everything else under the sun. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, the hole shall remain void. For only Jesus Christ can fill the void in humanity. Number 13, he must manage his own household well. The godly leader demonstrates his leadership ability first in his own home and with his own family. Paul recognized that it is the home where our Christianity is properly demonstrated. If you can't take care of your own, you have no business caring for God's household. None. Now, I have to address it because it is true that some children revolt against their godly parents. But the real issue is this, and I want you to think of it. Is it because of awful parenting or despite it? Is it because of awful, ungodly parenting or despite it? That's the real question. And that is why every human heart knows its own sorrows. And God does not have a single solitary grandchild, only children. People don't get proxied in. Well, my great-great-grandfather was a Christian and a pastor, and so we're all Christians. No, that's not how it works, okay? You don't get grandfathered into the process. Christianity is not the union. It's not. God has tons and tons of children, but not a single grandchild. Number 14, as we near the end of the list, 
he must not be a recent convert. Now, boom, we get to another one that is not character-based. This is not character-based. New believers in the church should never be given leadership too quickly. Never. Paul makes it clear, you never lay hands on someone too speedily. Never. The whole idea is caution in choosing leaders. Men being considered for leadership should never be a novice in their spiritual growth. Never. That doesn't mean we can't train new believers. It means you don't put them in leadership training programs. That's ridiculous. Why? It's simple. Because pride is a thing that takes down many mighty people. It particularly takes down the novice. You give them too much, too quick, they're elated, they're overwhelmed, they get drunk with power, they fall. Ask me how I know. Because I've seen it in 25 years of pastoral ministry. I have seen it heartbreakingly too many times. Heartbreaking to watch this happen. It's heartbreaking. And last but certainly not least, he must be well thought of by outsiders. The quality of godly character must be evident to all peoples, even those outside of the church. And I know this is the one that sounds counterintuitive for some people, but all potential leaders must be good Christians outside the four walls of the church. How different this sounds from the words of Jesus, blessed are ye when men revile you. And yet, how often has the world borne witness to the life of spotless humility? How many times do we have to hear about pastors cheating with their secretaries? For years, a decade. How often do we have to hear about the missions pastor who secretly funding money millions upon millions overseas was actually putting them in an offshore account for himself and now owns tons of land in Bermuda. How often do we hear all these different things? Well, I'm going to tell you, the problem is, is sometimes for some unbeknownst reason, and I'm not telling you I have the answer for it. I'm telling you that symptomatically, one of the problems is rushing people into leadership. It's a bad, bad, bad idea. It's a bad idea. Would to God that we would only look at the only place that tells us how to select, recognize, and train is the Bible. There's no other, there's no self-help book. There's nothing, there's nothing in the theology department of the library that's gonna help us on this one. The word of God tells us exactly how it ought to be done. And it's like making ribs, low and slow. You put ribs on the grill, you can eat them, but I won't, because they're just gonna be tough and they're not gonna taste good. When it comes to leadership, it's gotta be low and slow. Because I can tell you this much, there's a million things to learn. All right? These, these, this book that we hold, dear brothers and sisters, 66 books, for the 15th thousandth time, let me say it again, it's not a book. It's a library. You're not learning a book. You're learning volumes of a library. You can take the next five years of your life and go dive into the book of Habakkuk and not nail it as a scholar. Because just four chapters in a minor prophet book is still mind-boggling deep. Everything that there is to learn in there. Everything. And so again, maybe you were a fantastic baseball player in college, but I can tell you as much. You were not a fantastic baseball player when you were seven. But you had an interest and you had a hunger. And so you learned the fundamentals. You played t-ball. You moved on to little league. You played ball in high school. And by the time you got to college, Man, you were good. But if you look back at 13 or 14 years of getting your face knocked in by people who threw a ball a lot harder than you or hit a lot harder than you at you, you realize there was a tremendous amount of growth, groaning, and training involved of all of that. The same is true when it comes to the word of God. Even with the supernatural giftedness that God gives to teachers. You are, not a, you are not a stallion out of the stable, all right? Trust me, I've gone back and listened to my sermon from 20 years ago. Oy vey. I've also found my study notes. I've already burned them and buried the ashes in my backyard. 
I've wrote things in my study Bible 28 years ago that, I mean, at this point would just be ready. You could start a new cult with the heresies that I wrote. Sincerely, the cult of Jasonity. You know, just, you could just take the theological musings of my 20 year old self and they were ridiculously stupid because I was ridiculously untrained. It takes time, brothers and sisters. You know, we're all in such a darn rush in New Jersey. Why don't you slow down? Why don't you stop? And why don't you enjoy life with Christ? You know, there's two different ways to smell a rose. I could smash you on the face with it, and you go, oh, man, that's, I think I got a thorn in my cheek, and I definitely picked up some kind of essence of a rose there. And, or you could just park yourself in front of a rose bush and gently put your face down into it and breathe it in, and you know what it is to smell a rose. Stop and enjoy your walk with Jesus Christ. Drink it in. Drink it in. It's living water. So those are the qualifications of an elder as quickly as we went. Now let's look at verse 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now we turn to the qualifications of a deacon, which are actually much fewer. Likewise, however, is a key transitional Greek word that serves to introduce a new category within the overall topic of church leadership, because that's what that word does in Greek. Having discussed elders in the first seven verses, Paul now gives five areas in which a deacon must be qualified. Again, these are not great qualities. These are the qualifiers for being a deacon. Must be dignified. That means he knows how to show proper respect towards both God and man. Literally, it means something like not goofy in nature in the Greek. Not constantly always joking around and being goofy. Because if you're going to be a servant in Christ's church, you need to actually know how to be serious. Because guess what? We're going to have very serious situations, aren't we? So you can't laugh at everything. Everything cannot turn into a joke. Number two, deacons must not be double-tongued. A man who speaks the truth the first time with no intent to deceive. That's what it means. Dialogos in Greek literally means two-tongued. It only appears here in the New Testament. Never again. So it's a one-off or a one-word occurrence or a hapax legonomon, if you like the fancy Greek term. But it means one time. Only one occurrence, which means when those words jump out and one of the apostles of old used it, he was trying to tell you this is a situation that actually needs you to stop and really listen to what he's saying. Because it's a word that's not used again. That means it's a specialty term. It's a specialty term. Only here. Now, some think that this refers to a gossip, but there's a very clear word for being a gossip in Greek or being even a storyteller, which is another very different word. But I think it seems best, however, to interpret as a prohibition against saying one thing to one person and another thing to someone else, which is another way of saying you're a liar. But not just that. You lie for circumstance. You lie to get ahead. And so in a certain context, storyteller really could work. But it's almost like someone who says one thing to you and then turns around and says something bad about you to someone else, in our culture, in our vernacular, what would we call that person? Two-faced. Don't we have a very clear, we have a clear term in English for that. It's called two-faced. And this here, dialogos, two-tongued or double-tongued, is very similar. Very similar. Number three, 
not addicted to much wine. Now, this is interesting because the wording is much different from the overseer's mark. The overseer's mark is the man who's next to a bottle and drunk is a great, great definition of that. This is a man who looks for any excuse to drink. Oh man, I had a hard day at work. I think it's time to have a beer. Oh man, I had a great day at work. I think it's time to have a beer. Oh man, I got a bonus at work. I think it's time to have a beer. Oh man, I got demoted at work. I think it's time to have a beer. Oh, look, it's Sunday. I think it's time to have a beer. I mean, any excuse, that's the idea. And you know what? Here's the best. I run into plenty of people who all they need is an excuse to have a drink. You can't have that. Even the deacons, diakonos literally means one who waits upon another. That, that's, a, that's a position of servanthood. They, they, they work under the elders. The elder are the spiritual teachers and leaders and guides of the church, and the deacons come alongside of, and they carry out the practical application of teachings and member care. You can't have your church servants. And yes, I'm a firm believer that deacons are leaders in the church. A lot of people say it's a non-leadership position. I adamantly disagree. Not true. It's absolutely a leadership position in the church. It's under the elders, which is a higher authority leadership position. Deacons are still leaders in churches. Of course they are. Yes, they are. You can't have someone who's constantly looking for a drink instead of looking to Christ. You had a bad day at church. You had a bad day in ministry. You had a bad counseling session. You don't go home and uncork a bottle. You go home and you get down on your knees. And you exercise 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. You humble yourself, casting your cares on Christ because Christ cares for you. That's what we do. Otherwise, the problem is, is that alcohol is now our functional savior. And that's what makes us feel better all the time. And that's a trap. Number four, not greedy for dishonest gain. Why is this one so important? That's because a deacon must not use his office as a means to take money. And that was a very important quality in the early church since the deacons would routinely handle money as a part of their official duties. That's why. Can't be a lover of money because you know what? You'll be constantly in a place of temptation. And number five, holding the mystery of the faith. Those who can adhere to proper doctrine out of a sincere conviction, which means deacons, yes, even deacons need to know their Christian doctrine, even deacons. You don't think deacons have the spiritual ability to do amazing things? How about Stephen, who was a church deacon? Who you go in Acts and you read what Stephen did, man. He, he, he pulls open literally the deepest Old Testament teaching on why Jesus is the Messiah. And for it, a large group of angry Jewish men stone him to death. What about Philip, who is a deacon? Well, he's the one who goes up to the Ethiopian eunuch and says, do you understand what you're reading? And of course, the eunuch says, how do I understand? And I have someone to teach me. And Philip preached the gospel to him and he got saved. And then he went all the way up the coast, preaching all the way up, all the way into Samaria. I love when people say, well, only elders can be used to minister the word to people. And eh, wrong, absolutely wrong. No way, no way. But notice now we move out of the qualifications and we move to some really good steps. First, be proved. A man must first demonstrate his ability for the office in the church by his conduct. In all reality, deacons and overseers are more recognized than they are appointed. They should be easily recognized because they already gravitate to doing the work that God has called them to do. Other deacons and elders in the, in the church have to have open eyes and ears to see them. Tokamozo, let them be tested. That's the Greek word that means you only approve after testing. It's actually, it's a funny word. It comes from metallurgy. It means to test the metal, whether, whether as to the fact that it's really what it says it is. Someone brings you a bunch of gold coins, but they don't feel right in your hand. What do you do? 
you got to do a medical test on them, see if someone's trying to smoke it past you. And they've just dipped some silver coins into gold. No one would ever do that. But that happens all the time. You see, the present tense of the verb indicates an ongoing test, not a one-time test like a lot of people think when they read it. And not even a time of prohibition, not even a period of prohibition. No, no. Deacons are to be continually tested before they officially serve as deacons. And the test in view here is the general assessment of a believer's service by the church. Once they become officially recognized as deacons, this evaluation goes on by the church. By the church. As to whether they are good servants or not. Yes, the honest goodness truth is you can disqualify yourself from church leadership, even after having been qualified to be so. You can disqualify yourself with your ungodly actions. Let their women likewise be. Oh, here's where Jason stirs the pot. Metaphorically. Qualifications for a female deacon. The similar phrasing of verse 8 seems to indicate that Paul was speaking of another office in the local church, the deaconess. These women, like deacons, serve under the leadership of the elders. However, some interpret this verse to be referring merely to the wives of deacons and not an office, Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Uh, Rodmacher and I share the same position. Uh, I personally believe the former. I believe the early church most certainly had female deacons. Absolutely. I, I believe that, again, the, the transitional phrase of likewise inserted into this Greek text means that there were female deacons in the early church, not just those who served with a husband. And I'll tell you why. Because deacons, because there is a woman who's definitely a woman, and she's called a deacon in the Bible. Romans 16, 1 and 2. Ready? Props to the NIV. They're the only translation that had the audacity slash courage to actually transliterate the word what it should be. Diakonos to the English equivalent deacon. Your New King James, your ESV, your NASB, it all says servant. Which in all honesty, hupertos also means male or female servant. And that's not the word. The word is the feminine version, diakonos. I commend you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help since she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Yeah, I think women can be deacons. Absolutely. Absolutely. And believe you me, when I said that 10 years ago in Calvary Chapel, I got lamb blasted by people <laughs> very, very badly. And I still hold to this. And when I pastored New Brunswick, we had seven female deacons. And let me tell you something. We had four male deacons and the seven female deacons blew those guys out of the water. Oh, baby. But notice, now there's a different set of qualifications for female deacons because Paul says, likewise, likewise. Female deacons must be dignified. Paul uses the same term here that he used in verse 8 to describe male deacons. That's why I believe it's distinctly male deacons and female deacons. Deaconess, deacons. Female deacons, like their male counterparts, must lead serious lives, which means people should hold them in a sense of awe because of their spiritual devotion in this life. They must not be slanderers. Now, ladies, hold on your hats. This is a rough one because it literally says, not devils. Diablos. This can properly be translated as slanders, backbiters, or talebearers, for all are of their father, the devil, and his lusts, they do them. Don't be like Satan. Chasetan in Hebrew means the deceiver. So, lady deacons, watch your tongues, all right? Watch your tongues. Don't get caught up. Don't, don't, don't get caught up dishing out tea, all right? Watch it. Watch that juicy G word. The gossip's going to get you. Don't let it get you. Female deacons must be sober-minded. The deaconess must not only control their tongues, but they also must make sound judgment calls. 
on how to minister. Number four, faithful in all things. Now this doesn't mean 1000% always faithful because that would really, really crush a lot of women. It means something like they will do all that they have committed to do in the church. When they say, don't worry, we understand that there's a huge event that needs to be planned, staffed, and cleaned up. We've got all of it. When you have good female deacons, you go, absolutely, not even worried about it. Because they said they shall, and it shall be done. That's what it means. They're one who have no problem honoring commitments. And now back to the male deacons, because... Paul switches back, and he switches back to the masculine Greek word for deacon. Deacons, too, must be husbands of only one wife. The Greek text literally reads, a one-woman kind of man or one-women men. The exact same thing it says for an elder in 1 Timothy 3.2. This is more about moral character and less about marital status. That's what it's really about. Deacons, no less than elders, must be beyond reproach, meaning not easily criticized. And in this case, it means like in a court hearing. They can't have any definitive sinful markers in their lives that allows them to be singled out. They can't. They differ in function from elders in that elders are the primary teachers of the church, more spiritual leadership, while deacons help in applying their teachings. So what is that? That's more practical and boots on the ground. And let me tell you something. Deacons without elders don't function, and elders without deacons don't function well. We, in the church, all they're needed. We need all. But nevertheless, the spiritual requirements for both are the same, and there are spiritual qualifications. Deacons must not have any blemish on their lives, anything which they could be accused, arraigned, or disqualified. Even their parenting can be called out, because again, if you can't care for your wife and children, if you can't keep your household together, and it's a mess, then how will you care for the household of God? Family first, Ministry second. Otherwise, you're a miserable father or mother if you're a female deacon. The reward of faithful service, verse 13. We're closing up. Two rewards await those men and women who have served well as deacons. It's amazing because it doesn't say this. There's no summary. There's no qualifier at the end of the list of the elders. And yet, I think it's awesome that there's one for deacons. First, they obtain for themselves a high standing. Bathmos is the word standing. It literally, literally in Greek refers to an elevated stand or a platform. Here it is, it is used metaphorically here to speak of those who are a step above everyone else in their serving. In our modern English vernacular, we might say that they are put on a pedestal of sorts. And let me tell you something right there. That is not sinful pride. Because deacons do not seek it, male nor female. Yet those who serve well are worthy of it. Because the worthiness comes from Christ and things done for his kingdom. Things done for his glory, not for our glory, for his glory. Second, they will gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this means something to the effect of how influential servants of God often become. Because you can say a lot and deliver a little, but people, like it or not in this world, see truth. When you put your money where your mouth is, you become believable. And when you put your heart where your treasure is, it's the same thing. When the world sees people with reckless abandon serve Christ, not only in word, but in word coupled with deeds, people see it. And a lot of the times, seeing is believing. For us in the church, no. We've already come to a saving faith. For people outside who've yet not seen Messiah for who he is. That's why Peter tells us, walk circumspectively in this world. So to summarize, who leads the church? Elders, 
whether you wanna call them bishops, shepherds, pastors, or overseers, or some other name, Paul very, very freely interchanges elders and overseers. All are distinctly male. And I'll tell you why. Chris should have went over it last week. First Timothy 2.13 distinctly says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In the garden, Adam was always, always in charge. Brothers and sisters, it's a creation order account. Adam was formed first, and then Eve came from a part of Adam to be ever close to his side because she came from a side of him. She was called a suitable help meet. I will make someone who is a suitable helper for the man, for it is not good that he is alone. And that's a beautiful picture, a very beautiful picture. But that means by God's design, Adam was always, we have a patriarchal Bible because God is patriarchal. Now that's not really popular today, but it's still the word of God. That's what it says. The Jews are a patriarchal society. Amen. That's exactly what the Bible says. Congratulations, you can read. That's exactly what it says. So is God. And if it would have said in the beginning, God formed Eve in his own likeness and took out of her aside and made Adam, you know what we'd all say? We'd all say, well, of course women are leaders because that's exactly how God did it in the garden. But that's not what it says. It says that God formed the man and breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul. And then took a side of him and made a whole nother being. If it bothers you, you don't have an argument with me. You have an argument with the, the author of scripture, God. Now, where elders and bishops and pastors and overseers are distinctly male in all of the Bible, by the way, Deacons, on the other hand, can be both male and female. And I think that that's awesome. Both have a qualifying set of characteristics that must both be recognized, number one, and number two, maintained. You have to be both recognized and you have to maintain your godly character. This is God's word. And for me, it's not up for debate. Because as soon as people come forward to me and they say, well, you know, I really don't like that. I hate to tell you, that's exactly what the word of God says. So if you're ready to put yourself in a place of deity and put it over the word, I would tell yourself, you might want to, you know, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because that's a bad place to be. All right? The word of God has authority over us. We do not. We do not have authority over it. There are pains in pastoral ministry that I could keep you here for a week straight and tell you, and it would not scratch the depths of the sorrow I felt. Pastoral ministry is tough. All of leadership is tough. Anyone God is calling into church leadership, you're going to see your fair share of grief, destruction, sorrow, and tragedy. You're going to. Paul knew that. Speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 verses 20 through 30 said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul said, it's not even so much of the outside attack that I'm, that I'm really afraid of. That's not my greater fear. My greatest fear is that from within, people will rise up and usurp, and usurp real biblical authority. Why? To draw disciples after themselves. This is why in the church, the elders and deacons must be of one accord. No ego, no arrogance. We have no place for it because all that it does is divide us. Whereas Jesus brings us together and unites us. Hebrews 13, 17 is a very good, a very good closing verse. 
The writer of Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning for that would be no advantage to you. I know it's hard for people to think this, but all those who serve in the church will one day at the Bama seat of Jesus Christ give an account for just how well or not how well they led. And whether it was for the glory of Christ or whether it was for the glory of man or worse, the glory of accolades and the glory of self. So you know what? The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't make leaders in the church, don't make their jobs any harder and arduous than they already are. That's no advantage to you. And by the way, good leaders, if you're in a good church, are people who are watching out for your very souls. So in Christ, obey them. So who leads the church? Ultimately, it is the Lord Jesus Christ and all those that he has called to be under shepherds, deacons, and deaconesses. That's who leads the church. But Jesus is our chief shepherd. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty matchless God, thank you for all the wonderful ways that you do all things well. We do things sometimes not so well but you are the God who does all things well. Your vision for the church, how you've laid it out, clear as crystal. And Lord, God, that we would humble ourselves and submit to your greater authority, Lord. You have left us your word that we might not have to scamper about in the darkness as though we know not what to do. It's clear, Lord. Let us give way to your word. Because Psalm 138 says, you hold your word and your name high. And your, your name is wonderful. Anehu, Yahweh, El Shaddai, the God who exists, I am that I am, God all powerful. Those, those are but a few of your names, how great they are. And that means your word is great as well because you truly are the author of scripture. We love you, Father, and it's really simple. We love you because you, in all of your grace, have loved us first. Bless us, O Lord, in Christ's mighty, mighty mighty name we ask, and all of God's family said in one accord, Amen. amen.